1 Samuel chapter 13. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks, and we ask you to fill us with your spirit as we read and encounter your word today. We pray that you would deliver us from every distraction, that you would deliver us from error, that you would help me to forget anything that's not helpful, and help me only to remember those things which are encouraging and edifying and helpful to your people. So guide us now through this study of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Just a few weeks ago, my family and I cashed in some airline miles and we flew up to Chicago where we met my parents for a, a few days. My parents both grew up in Chicago. They were both from the South and their families were from the South, but they migrated up to Chicago in the 50s with many other families from the South because. Uh, That's where work was. Work was in all of the big Midwestern cities. And so large extended families picked up from Arkansas and Tennessee and Mississippi, and they moved everything up to up to big Midwestern cities. So my parents' families were, were part of those. And they, my parents spent their formative years in Chicago, right alongside aunts and uncles and cousins and their grandparents. My parents went to high school there. My parents met there. They were married there. I was born there, um, but don't hold that against me. I, uh, I tell my friends in the South, I was born in Chicago, but I got here just as quick as I could. I, I got to the South just as quick as I could. B- but as you can imagine, there's a lot of family history there, a lot of stories, old houses, places they used to go, places they used to take me and my sister when we were little, um, the old neighborhoods, and, and they wanted to share all of that. They wanted to, they wanted to share all of that with us and with my children to show my children for the first time these places that were so meaningful and so important to 
our family, you know, the places where my parents rode their bikes when they were kids and the same place I rode my bike and where I learned to ride a bike. This was, this was very significant and it helps us and it helps our children uh, understand our story a little bit better. To, to know our family history, to flesh out the details and have answers to the questions, who am I? Who are we? Where, where did we come from? Which is critically important. If you haven't been able to do that with your family, it feels like we're all from somewhere else. And it feels like we all grew up in different parts of the country. We all kind of, kind of gravitate uh, and have, have come together here. But it's important if you haven't had that opportunity to show your kids a little bit about your story, a little bit about your background. It's critically important for your children to know your family history. It's even more essential that they know the history and the story of the family of which we're all a part, that they know the story of our fathers and mothers of the faith, to know the history of God's people and his redemption of his people. We must have that story in our heads and in our hearts, to know it so well that it's, it's part of our DNA, it's part of who we are, part of the fabric of our being, because, because God has revealed himself through the story of his interaction and his work with his people. God has revealed himself through the story of his deliverance of his people and his pursuit of a people. That's, that's how God shows himself. And it's that story that we all must be experts in. Uh, it's, that story, it's that story that we must all know and hold close to our heart because it's through that story that God shows us what he loves. It's through that story that God shows us what he despises. He, he shows us what is sacred and what is profane. He shows us what he blesses and what he judges through that story. And it's because I want all of us to know this story that we spend time going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through these texts so that you know, I want you to know and I want your children to know this is not some ancient irrelevant text or some moralistic fable that, that might be helpful and give you a little pick-me-up every once in a while. But this is true. It is history. It is your story. And you ignore it to your own destruction. You ignore it to your own hurt. And sometimes we see there are times when the people in the stories that we're reading uh, forget their own story. They forget their place in the grand story. And that very kind of passage is in front of us right now. King Saul, in the passage we'll look at today, King Saul becomes suddenly very forgetful, very willful. He's going to act like he's never been taught anything. He's going to ignore the story that he should know, the story that he should be an expert in. Instead, he acts like he's a special case and nothing that has come before applies to him, that it, that it doesn't have any weight or bearing on his story. Now, let's remind ourselves where we are in the story and catch us all up to where we are in 1 Samuel. Israel has asked for a king like all the nations, one who will fight their battles for them. Despite the warning from God's man Samuel that a man uh, who, is, who is like the kings the nations have, he's going he's gonna to be the kind of man who takes and takes and takes. Despite that warning, when we see the man that God has selected for the job, 
He's not a monster. He's not a narcissist. He's actually a really good man. He's a humble man. He cares for his father's animals when we see him, just like David, just like Joseph. He's respectful. He's not grasping for power. He's, 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 not, he's not willful. He's not a narcissist, as I said. But on top of that, we get all these statements about his stature and his appearance. He's, he's the perfect man for the job in every way. Uh, he's, he's like a new Adam in, in uh, every respect. Samuel, the priest, anoints Saul, and he's turned into another man. God gives him a new heart. God's Holy Spirit fills Saul. God's Holy Spirit rests upon Saul, and Saul prophesies. From there, Saul is publicly appointed king by the high priest, and the affirmation of the people is right behind that. About that time, a serpent invades the garden. Nahash the Ammonite, whose name literally means serpent. A serpent invades the garden, and Saul rises up and rallies the people to go defeat the serpent and to defend God's heritage. All good so far. Everything is wonderful. And at this point, Samuel calls everyone together to renew covenant with God. They all confess their sins, and then they crown Saul as king. Saul thus far has proven himself to be a faithful husband to Israel. Israel is the bride and we need a faithful husband and that faithful husband so far looks like Saul's the man. And that's where we left off last time a couple of weeks ago. Israel has been renewed. Israel is at peace with God. The new king is a new man with a new heart. Everything looks great. However, all of this is challenged. All of this is unsettled again in chapter 13. Let's take a walk through this chapter and see how this unfolds. Verse 1 of, of, of 13, if you're following along. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. The Hebrew here is complicated. I, I could spend a lot of time on it. I won't. There are no numbers in this text in the Hebrew, originally in what we have. So we could read this, Saul reigned X years, and when he had reigned Y years over Israel, he chose for himself 3,000 men. Um, if your Bible has numbers there, they ought to be in italics. And some translations say Saul reigned 42 years. That's uh, completely, I, I don't know where they get that. I, I, the book of Acts says uh, in, in one of uh, Paul's sermons that Saul reigned 40 years over Israel. Um, and, and that's pretty, uh, that, that's, you know, pretty reliable. That, that text tells us uh, explicitly that Saul reigned 40 years. So, so the best that we can figure that, that what we're being told here is that Saul reigned for a time, and we don't know how long. It's a, it's a complicated Hebrew idiom here. And if you want more information on it, come to me and we'll, I'll, I'll give you some articles and resources. But for our study, suffice it to say, um, Saul reigns for a period, and it, and it must have been a pretty good period because we find out that his son Jonathan is, is captain over an army at this point. So he's had time to raise up his son Jonathan and for his son to uh, be in charge of fighting men. So we'll read it this way. After a time of Saul's reign, sometime after his coronation, Saul chose 3,000 men for a standing army. And 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Thus far in Israel's history, whenever there's been a threat, 
whenever we needed to go to war against our enemies, a judge blew a trumpet and every man of fighting age was gathered together. They collected his weapons and he showed up for battle to protect his home. It's kind of like Switzerland, you know, everyone, everyone in Switzerland is trained to fight. Everyone has a weapon underneath their bed, which is why nobody messes with Switzerland. You don't, you don't mess with a nation where everybody's armed and everybody's dangerous. And if you invade them, you're going to have to fight from house to house to house. Well, that's, that's what Israel's structure was like. They were, uh, every, every man of fighting age would fight. They'd blow a trumpet and everyone would show up and they'd, they'd go to war. Now though, we've got a new age of Israel. We've got a centralized power that we didn't have before in the king. And um, now we do have a small standing army. And this is not strictly forbidden. God's law forbids the king from having a large standing army. Remember, he's not to multiply horses. But now it seems wise to have a small company of men who are trained to fight. And when the time comes, we call out the militia to fight alongside the regular army. And that's what Saul institutes here. He, he gets 3,000 trained fighting men together as professional soldiers. Two-thirds of the men are with Saul, and a third are with Saul's son, Jonathan, at Saul's hometown of Gibeah. The rest are sent away. Now, this, we're going to see echoes and trickles and memories of other stories, shadows of other stories. Who else calls together a large army and sends some away? Well, Gideon does, and we're going to see echoes of Gideon's story over our story today. So, so look for those as I read, and, and, and I'll bring a few of them out. Many parallels between the life of Saul and Gideon. I've mentioned those before, how many, how many parallels are between Saul and Gideon. So, verse 3, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And when the Philistines heard of it, then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Jonathan takes initiative against the Philistines. Remember after Yahweh thundered at the Philistines and along about the same time, Samson knocked down the temple of Dagon that had all of the captains and lords and and royalty of the Philistines in it. Those two things happened about the same time. Philistia was decapitated. Philistia was liquidated. Philistia had no strength and they really haven't been a bother. They haven't been a problem. But now... They're starting to creep back in. They're trying to get a toll hold. And faithful Jonathan takes the men that his father entrusted him. And he goes and he attacks the camp, the garrison of Philistia. And then Saul follows that up by blowing the trumpet, just like the judges did. Remember, Ehud blowed a trumpet. Uh, Gideon blew a trumpet to summon the militia to come fight. Verse 4. Now all Israel heard it was said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Saul gets the credit for the attack. Jonathan was the one who led the charge, but Saul gets the credit. That's how it works and uh, that's okay, I guess. But it was Jonathan who was faithful and took the initiative. And now, once again, Israel is on bad terms with Philistia, which is fine. We don't want to be friends with Philistia. Do we care if we're an abomination? We, do we care? The, the phrase literally is, Israel was a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. Do we care if we stink to the Philistines? No, the Philistines stink themselves. The Philistines stink to us. And it's interesting that this phrase, 
literally, Israel became a stench in the nostrils. It's also used back in Genesis 46, when Israel was a stench in the nostrils of the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't like that the Israelites kept sheep and herds and flocks. They didn't, they thought they stank. And so uh, quite literally, the Israelites became an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, remember also that Philistia, the, the Philistines are descendants of Egypt somehow. Maybe they were a displaced dynasty when a new dynasty of Egyptians came in. In some way, the Philistines are descended from the same people that the, uh, the Egyptians are descended from. The Philistines are always kind of a little stand-in for Egypt. Whenever we need somebody to symbolize Egypt, they're the Philistines. So if we put this all together, once again, our people are a stench in the nostrils to Egyptians or people like the Egyptians. And the question is going to be, how is this going to go? Depending on how this plays out, we may end up enslaved to them again. We need to deal with this threat now. It's like old conflicts are being rekindled here. So Saul calls everyone to Gilgal. Oh, we keep coming back to Gilgal, don't we? Remember last time, where were we? In Gilgal, when Samuel called everyone to renew covenant here, why? Because this is the place where uh, Israel renewed covenant with God after coming out of the wilderness, after crossing the Jordan River. They come and they camp at Gilgal, and that's where all the men are circumcised. This is where they celebrate the Passover. It's from Gilgal that they launched the attack on Jericho. And we talked about all of that last time. But there was one other notable thing that I didn't mention last time. I want to save it for this week. One more thing that happened at Gilgal, and that was the appearance of the captain of Yahweh's host to Joshua. Do you remember that? When, when the angel of the Lord, the captain of Yahweh's army, appeared to Joshua. I'm going to read that little part from Joshua in chapter 5. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. I, I love that exchange. That, that is such, that's, that's one of my favorite little conversations in all of Scripture. When Joshua sees the captain, the angelic commander of God's angelic army, Joshua asks him, are you with us or with you, are you with our enemies? And his answer is, no, I'm not with either. I'm with whoever pleases Yahweh. I'm with whoever obeys him. That's whose side I'm on. Whose side are you on? Are you on my side? Or are you on Jericho's side? You know what? Let's put it this way. If you obey the Lord, I'm on your side. If you do what God says, I'm with you. But if not, I'm, you can't count on my help. So Saul has known this story ever since he was a little boy. And Saul should remember that the thrust of this exchange is that the Lord fights for those who obey him. The Lord fights for those who please him. God is not automatically on your side no matter what. If you're in sin and you're in rebellion, you have no confidence that the Lord fights for you. 
This is part of the history, and this is part of the story of Gilgal. It's part of the history and story of Saul's family. And so now that Saul is camped at Gilgal, the question is, is he going to remember this? Is he going to remember the conquest of the land of promise? Is he going to continue to push the idolaters out of the land rather than be pushed out by them? And and here's the problem. Right now, it looks like Israel is about to be pushed out of the land by the idolaters. Verse 5. The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. I've said this before, but it always bears repeating. When you read about chariots in the Bible, you need to think about the most advanced weapons technology known to the ancient world at about this time. You need to think about the most uh, dangerous, scary weapons available. Chariots in this world were like high-speed tanks that could cut through lines of, of men like butter through hot knife. There was a man driving the chariot where you could just run right through enemy lines. If the chariot was large enough, you could also fit a couple of bowmen in there who could fire and shoot. So, so this, is a, this is like a high-speed tank that can uh, run you over. They're incredibly deadly. They're incredibly terrifying. And Israel has zero chariots. They have no chariots. In fact, we're going to read in just a little bit that they don't have any iron weapons either. They don't have any spears. They don't have any swords. They, they have none of this. What do they have? They have bows and arrows and they have slings. Those are their weapons. That's all that's left to them. And maybe some farm implements. Maybe they can use some farm implements as, as melee weapons, but that's, that's about it. No swords, no spears. So imagine the fear and put yourself in this place that if you're coming up against an army with heavy artillery and tanks and you've got your revolver and you've got your deer hunting rifle and you're going to say, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's do this. Let's charge. You know that that's terrifying. We also read there that the Philistines were as many as the sand on the seashore. Well, who's supposed to be like the sand on the seashore? To whom has God promised that they would be like the sand on the seashore? The children of Abraham are supposed to be like the sand on the seashore. But here it's the enemy who obviously has our army outnumbered. And as a footnote, that's another reference to Gideon. When Gideon looked down into the camp of the Amalekites and the Midianites, what does he say? They're like the sand on the seashore when he sees all of their camels and all of their tents. It's the same phrase, exact same phrase that is used back in Gideon's story. But if we know our story and the story is part of us and the story is in the fabric of our being, we know that Gideon was able to defeat that great multitude with 300 men. Saul has 3,000. Saul has 3,000, 10 times as many, right? A hundred times as many? Please forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. He had many more. It's ten times as many, right? Please tell me I'm right. I can't do math on Sunday morning. He should be fine. But, but where are the people of Israel? Where are they? 
They're hiding in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. That's what it says. They're hiding in the rocks. If you're hiding in the rocks, it's like it's the end of the world. It's like everything is dead. Isaiah and Revelation both talk about people running to the caves and pits before the judgment of God. Where did Lot and his daughters go after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? They went into caves. Why? They thought the world was over. And they thought that they had to restart the human race all on their own. They thought that they were the last uh, of the human beings because the world had ended. Um, Gideon's story also sees people hiding in caves and pits. The very first time we see Gideon, remember, he's beating out barley in an underground wine press. He's in a wine cellar beating out barley because he's hiding his harvest from the Midianites who would steal it. So, so this is the scene in Israel. Everybody's hiding. Everybody's cowering. It's like death and judgment is over the land. Are the people overreacting a little bit? Why is there so much fear and trembling? Why also do we read that some people are just picking up and leaving the land, just like um, uh, Naomi's husband uh, did when, uh, when we read the beginning of the book of Ruth, that things are too tough. It's too hot. We got to get out of the kitchen. Why is everyone suddenly melting? before some Philistine chariots. It's because nobody remembers their story. Nobody remembers who they are. Nobody remembers who God is and what he does for his people. It's like everyone has this mass cultural amnesia. It's, it's like every time we bring up uh, the fact that socialism never works, for example, and every new generation has to be reminded that socialism never works. They say, but, but, but socialism. And we say, well, that, that doesn't work. It's been tried. It doesn't work. But, but, but have we tried socialism? No, no, no. It, it, it doesn't work. It's never worked. It's, it's the very same. Nobody, nobody remembers and nobody knows. It, they just don't know their story. And they don't remember what happens when things look this way. What God does at this point in the story every time is deliver his people. Saul doesn't remember this, even though he should be heavily relying on the story of Gideon and remember that God defeated a great army back then after, after God deliberately pared down his own army. Well, Saul might say, but these guys have chariots and lots of them. Well, also back in Judges, God defeated Sisera. And remember, Sisera had a lot of chariots, but they were no match for the mud. Remember, uh, they all got stuck in the mud and God engineered that. God ordained that. Saul should remember all this. And this is the point. He should be encouraged. He should remember that Gideon won against the Amalekites and the Midianites because of his detailed obedience to God and doing exactly what God said in the order that God required it. That's how the enemies were defeated. But instead, we see the first of a tragic series of failures on Saul's part. Remember, Saul is at Gilgal. Way back in chapter 10, several years ago, Samuel said, one day you will come to Gilgal. And when you come to Gilgal, wait for me. Wait there. I will be there in seven days and we will offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Don't start without me, Saul. Okay, here we are. We're at Gilgal and it's hard to wait because it feels like the world is ending. People are leaving the land. People are trembling. Everyone's hiding in rocks and caves and pits and wells. It feels like everything is over and, and, and the world is falling apart. And this is where Saul is. Verse 8. 
Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to Yahweh. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Remember these two offerings that he is standing here to offer, the whole burnt offering or the ascension offering and the peace offering. The whole burnt offering or the ascension offering, you put the entire animal on the altar, it's completely consumed by the fire. It represents the person and all of his gifts and all of his resources and everything that he is being offered up to the Lord. The peace offering is the communion offering, which signifies a restoration of fellowship. So Saul waits. He does wait seven days to make the sacrifices, remembering what Samuel had told him. He hasn't forgotten. That's not his excuse. He hadn't forgotten. But on, the, on day seven, Samuel is not there. And so Saul proceeds without him. And as soon as Saul gets done with the burnt offering, with the ascension offering, Samuel shows up as soon as he's done. This reminds us that uh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit and then they hurried up and they made some fig leaf coverings for themselves. And then God shows up right after. It, It doesn't take a long time for God to show up. Remember when Aaron made the golden calf and the people started a party. Moses shows up right in the middle of the party. God's timing is impeccable. And God's timing is impeccable here again. Saul is caught right in the middle of disobedience. Saul goes up to Samuel as soon as he sees him and he tries to patch everything up. Hey, Samuel, buddy, pal, it's great to see you. And Samuel says, what have you done? Well, well, the people were scattering from me and you weren't here. Where, Where were you? I tried to call you like 10 times. You didn't pick up. We're about to get attacked. You know that, right? We're about to get slaughtered here. And so I thought we better get started. We need to get the show on the road. Saul tries to act like it's not a big deal. And he wants to persuade Samuel everything's going to be okay. And in the process, Saul sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Just passing the buck. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent's fault. It's like Aaron. Um, uh, waiting, he's Aaron telling Moses, you know, we waited and we waited and you didn't show up. It's the same thing. What does Saul say? He says, well, the people are scattering. So it's the people's fault. And we waited on you and you didn't show up. So it's kind of your fault. And the Philistines are massing and encroaching. And so it's the serpent's fault. It's, it's everybody's fault, but mine, honestly, if you want to be serious about it, it's, uh, it's everybody else's fault. And I felt compelled, Samuel. I was obligated. I was backed into a corner. Don't you see? I had no other choice. But none of his excuses fly. Nothing holds water. Saul abused his office. Saul has been appointed head of the state. He is not head of the church. He's not head of the religious life of Israel. He is head of the state. And with the state, he has certain obligations and certain responsibilities. But he's not head of the church. 
and he has abused his office. This is the priest's job, to offer sacrifices, to superintend worship. Saul is given a test, and he doesn't pass. And the sin of Saul is the exact same sin as the sin of Adam, as we've seen over and over and over. The sin of Adam was the sin of impatience. And I've hinted at this before in our study, and I said we're going to come back to it, and this is where we are. God told Adam, every plant in the garden is good for food for you. There's one you can't eat right now. But the implication there is this, this prohibition is temporary. If Adam had obeyed, if Adam had waited and was faithful to protect the garden from the serpent, I have no doubt that Adam could have eaten of that too on God's time. But if you just wait until the proper time, God says, I will give it to you when you are ready. And of course, Adam seizes the benefit before it is time. Saul's sin here is the exact same sin. God says to Saul, I'll give you everything if you wait and be patient. Don't grasp for and try to seize the prerogatives of royalty. Wait. Saul doesn't wait and he loses it all. When we can compare Saul's disobedience to Adam's disobedience, we see the enormity of Saul's fall here. All the great things that we've learned about Saul, everything wonderful that we've seen about him so far, all these qualities now just come crashing down. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Samuel calls Saul a fool. And the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And that's exactly what Saul is acting like as if there's no God. Saul is at Gilgal and he's forgotten who the captain of the Lord's army is, who fights the battles of his own people, the people who please him. Now in judgment for this, God doesn't take away Saul's crown. He just says, your son is not going to be king. Saul doesn't lose his position. Saul does lose his legacy. Saul does lose his dynasty. Jonathan is not going to inherit the throne. That is the curse for this disobedience, which is a real tragedy when we get to know Jonathan because Jonathan is in every way the kind of king that you want. Jonathan is a faithful man in every respect. But God says, I'm seeking another man to take your spot and carry on from this place forward. How does Saul respond? Verse 15, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So, so over this time, he's lost um, a significant portion of his men. He's down to 600. But, but Saul just get up, he, he gets up and he leaves. Saul doesn't repent. Saul doesn't cry out for mercy. Saul doesn't tear his clothes and fall on his face. Saul just packs up and leaves. He just kind of fades out of the scene. Suppose that Saul had repented. I think his kingdom would have been restored. But there's no evidence of even a hint of sorrow or remorse. Remember, there is grace even in the Lord's judgments. If you are still alive after judgment, there's still room for you to repent. 
If you're still alive after the judgment, there is grace. There is an opportunity to change. Judgment is always gracious. Saul could have repented, but he doesn't. Later, David is going to do arguably worse things than this. But what's the difference? David repents when he's confronted and corrected. Saul is told, you have lost your throne. You have, you have lost your legacy in Israel. Saul is told that. And what does he do? He just kind of walks away. That's what he does. That's his response. And that's what's so frustrating about this story is that there's no resolution. There's all this buildup and we're getting ready for a big battle and there's no battle. I'm going to pick up from verse 16. I'm going to finish it from here. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned on to the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found through all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim, or, or a third of a shekel. For the plow, uh, plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out the pass of Michmash. That's the way the story ends. It just kind of fizzles out. There's just this note about Philistine raiding parties running up and down the roads and this note about nobody having any swords because the Philistines had a monopoly on the blacksmiths and it was expensive to even sharpen your farm implements. But there's no victory for Israel. There's no peace. We didn't even make it to the peace offering. It's like we, we got through the ascension offering, we got through the sermon, and we never made it to communion. We just cut it off right after the ascension offering, right after the sacrifice is just burned up completely on the altar. There's no meal, there's no communion, there's no fellowship. We left after the ascension offering. So the serpent isn't driven out. People from Israel are being terrorized in the land of promise, and some of them are leaving. Everything is only going to get worse here for Saul. How did the bottom fall out of Saul's story so quickly? Why did we have all this great buildup to Saul's kingdom only to have everything collapse in an instant? One significant reason is that Saul was supposed to know the covenant story of his people. He was supposed to gain confidence from that story, and yet he forgot it. He was supposed to know that at this point he was being called upon to obey and to have faith despite what the people are doing obey, despite whether Samuel showed up or not. Obey, despite what the enemy is doing. Obey. And this is what we tell our children, right? It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what they say. You got to obey. You got to do what I say, right? 
And that's exactly what the Lord wants from Saul at this point. It doesn't matter what's going on. You got to obey. You got to do what I tell you to do. Don't let yourself be distracted and befuddled and demoralized and confused by the ambient noise of whatever else is going on. God said, wait seven days. You wait seven days. Who does the captain of the Lord's angelic host fight for? He fights for the one who obeys. That's what we're after. Wait. That's all you have to do. And he didn't. He didn't wait. And see, brothers and sisters, this is why you and I have to know our story. So that we don't repeat the same sin. Every sin at some level is a rehashing of the fall of Adam. We go through the same impatience and discontent and rebellion against clear commands. We make excuses. We pass the buck. We try to cover it up. We have these little internal lawyers that kick in that say, oh, well, this is why it's okay for me to do this. If another person did this, it's not okay. But you see, this is why it's okay for me. I'm special. Every sin is a recapitulation of the fall of Adam. And if you don't see it that way, you're not taking sin very seriously. That's what Saul failed to grasp. That's what he failed to realize. Now Saul has fallen. He's the best we had. Saul was our best representative. And now he's ruined everything. Saul has let the serpent into the garden. Now we need a righteous king to come kill the serpent for us so that we can have peace. Now that righteous servant, that righteous king will come, but not before Saul digs a deeper hole. And of course, our best representative has failed. Our best representative, Adam, let the serpent into the garden. We need a better king to come and set everything right, to run the serpent out of the garden, to crush his head and to deliver us and to give us peace. And that king, of course, is Jesus, who we embrace, whose righteousness we must be united to, to be pleasing to God. We must know our story, to know where we fit in all of that, so that we can have hope, so that we can have victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you for your word, and I thank you for the way that it continues to inform and shape and, and, and fill us and, and direct our lives and direct our steps. We pray that we would not be a people ignorant of it, that we'd not be biblically illiterate, but that we would know our story so that we don't repeat these same terrible mistakes and sins over and over. And we see Saul, as we see Saul so foolishly uh, and, and willfully do. So Father, guide us and our children, we pray in faithfulness and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.